HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. It has lots of branches, like a little tree. And what color do you see where a branch starts from the stem? Look at the, yes, purple. Has purple coloring. And this is related to spinach and beets. It tastes like spinach, only better. It is cut down as a weed. And the reason it's growing over here is because the tree protects it from its natural enemy. What would kill it if it were growing in the open lawn that's afraid of trees? Yes, the lawnmowers. <laughs> that's Wildman Steve Brill guiding a foraging walk in Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Here he's discussing how to identify a plant you've likely seen all over and never noticed called lamb's quarters. There are edible plants all around us. But without an expert, you shouldn't go tasting random bushes. So where should you start? It may feel daunting, but the thought of finding your own food, whether in urban parks or an untouched forest, opens up a world of cultural and culinary opportunities. A plant you may have considered a weed could be a salad for six next time you have friends over. A mushroom hunting expedition could connect you to an altogether new community. The opportunities are endless. That's why, this week, we're unpacking foraging practices. We'll learn how smartphone apps are paving the way for a new generation of mushroom foragers. Then we'll offer some safety tips for budding foragers. Next, we'll hear about the significance of foraging on indigenous North American lands, followed by an exploration of one entrepreneur's resourceful use of foraged ingredients. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. A quick disclaimer before we dive in. Forage at your own risk. This episode is not meant to be taken as professional advice. Please seek expert guidance before consuming wild edibles. It's important that in addition to correctly identifying wild edibles, you're aware of local laws, property ownership, potential pesticide and herbicide applications, etc. that might affect your safety. Always remember, if in doubt, throw it out. To start us off, Anna Oaks looks at how smartphone apps are helping foster a new generation of mushroom enthusiasts. 
During the pandemic, outdoor meetup groups from golf to gardening struggled to find remote ways to stay active. But one group flourished. We started very early in um, in the lockdown last March, having uh, our, our weekly identification meetings, which we have every Monday night all year round via Zoom. And I, I think that switching to Zoom brought more people in and people who who normally would find it difficult to get to our one of our in-person meetings would come to these. Tom Bigelow is the former president of the New York Mycological Society, which is dedicated to raising public awareness about mushrooms in science, food, and our environments. Like the fruiting bodies of fungi, rising rapidly from the decomposing compounds of the soil, the New York Mycological Society has adapted to difficult conditions. They've been quick to incorporate new technologies and methods like Zoom and smartphone apps into what is traditionally a pretty analog activity. We provide guidelines with uh, the most effective way to document mushrooms that you see in city parks with photographs. So people have, uh, have gotten quite good at it. One of the apps the society uses is called iNaturalist, which members use to photograph and share their finds. Um, iNaturalist is a, is a great tool for documenting where and when you are, are finding mushrooms. It's great because you can document something using your cell phone and upload images instantly. It can be accessed by anyone uh, anywhere in the world. So it's a, it's a really great resource. The Mycological Society uses iNaturalist as part of a larger project to record the species of fungi of New York City. By tracking species in New York parks, like Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, the Society aims to provide insight into broader environmental trends like climate change. Long-term data of this sort can provide, or at least suggest, changes in climate. It can correlate to weather patterns. And an intensive fungal survey of such a small area will also invariably turn up some unusual fungi. iNaturalist also helps foragers identify plants and fungi using artificial intelligence. Foragers photograph their finds, and the app pulls from its own database to make an approximate identification. I see it more as an aid in identifying something, or to see if you're, how good your tree or shrub or weed identification skills are getting, but not something to rely on entirely. These technologies help make foraging more accessible to people who may not be familiar with navigating these kinds of spaces. That democratization of knowledge may help explain the increased interest in foraging in recent years. The membership of the New York Mycological Society, for instance, has ballooned over the last five years from around 350 members to over 1,000 today. 
Tom attributes this to a growing awareness of topics like permaculture, fungi-based environmental cleanups called mycoremediation, and self-sufficiency. It's not just the New York Mycological Society. I think clubs all over North America are are going through this explosion of, of new interest. It's also marked larger shifts in the practice of foraging itself. The Mycological Society and others like it have moved away from an emphasis on foraging for food. Our club started to break out of that mold maybe about eight or nine years ago when we decided that by not going out in the wintertime, we were missing a whole group of cold weather fungi. So we started to make a concerted effort to go on walks uh, in city parks every weekend, all year round. And we've recorded, uh, I I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. The tendency is towards a more scientific documentary approach facilitated by the apps. And a lot of mushroom clubs have branched out so that they're not only looking for, say, charismatic, fleshy fungi, guild mushrooms and boletes and things of that sort, but they're also looking for plant pathogens. They're looking for little ascomycetes. They're branching out so that they're trying to get a fuller picture of the fungal world around them. The apps may provide a broader, more accessible understanding of our world, but they're far from perfect, especially when it comes to organisms as heterogeneous as mushrooms. It has a harder time with fungi where the fruiting bodies are generally ephemeral and they can change in appearance drastically depending on their age or weather conditions. And there are deeper questions about how, for instance, smartphone apps like iNaturalist mediate our interactions with nature. I've used these apps, and it's so rewarding and fun to walk around taking pictures and learning the scientific names of plants and fungi. But the gamified structure of the apps does pull you in. What if there's a risk that foraging becomes less about the experience of stumbling through the forest, discovering and eating the different species? Instead, that the aim becomes to systematically catalog fungi according to Western taxonomy. Or maybe foraging moves from a group activity, laying out the day's prizes on picnic tables and debating their identification with more experienced mycologists, to a solitary, digitized walk through the woods. But maybe I'm just taking the wrong approach. That's not really something that I see as becoming a problem. In a way, I think younger people are more savvy about uh, the the use of apps and and, uh, are are more uh, maybe aware of the strengths and weaknesses of them than older members might be. In the end, while there's a price to pay for spending more time on our phones, they can be a real gateway to connecting with nature. In any case, Tom points out that there are more pressing issues to worry about. And these are things like uh, loss of habitat or 
tree pathogens like the uh, the woolly adelgid that's killing uh, hemlock trees, the emerald ash borer that's wiping out ash trees. These are really serious problems for uh, the fungi, the mycorrhizal fungi that are associated with these trees. Foraging must be accessible and inclusive, and it has to adapt to changing times and conditions. But while foraging apps are helpful tools, it's important that they don't stand alone between us and our environments. Take a look outside your front door. What do you see? A tree? A clump of weeds? We may be out of the habit of looking for nourishment from the natural world, but edible plants surround us. Hannah Forden has been exploring and tasting her backyard and shares insights about foraging safely. If your Instagram feed is anything like mine, it's become very clear recently that foraging is all the rage. Humans have always searched, gathered, and feasted on edible, uncultivated plants. But for the last half century in the industrial world, we've been estranged from wild food sources. Ancestral wisdom is generally the key to understanding what wild plants can offer us. But for those of us who have not had that knowledge passed down, an iPhone is a surprising ally. With plant identification apps like Picture This, I can usually identify what I find. Foraging for food in a rural area has some risks. I stay away from plants growing near any buildings to avoid things like lead paint in the soil. And I leave the gorgeous garlic mustard that grows along the road, as tempting as it is, because the soil has been exposed to things like de-icing salt all winter. Aside from cautions like that, as long as I'm able to accurately identify them, I can enjoy wild plants with relative safety. In cities, there's a whole different host of potential contaminants. Artist and citizen scientist Candace Thompson is someone I look to for guidance on safely enjoying urban edibles. I forage feral edible plants and some animals from around the greater New York City area. I get them toxicity tested through Cornell. Um, I right now can look at arsenic, cadmium, and lead because those are three of the um, heavy metal contaminants that I can afford to test for and that are kind of one of our biggest problems in urban spaces. And then I see if there's anything I can do either in the field or in the kitchen to mitigate that. Um, And if I find or am able to make anything clean enough to eat um, when compared to EU standards for heavy metals in our food web, because spoiler alert, they're there. Her research has revealed the presence of toxins that have been absorbed in plants growing in this very polluted neighborhood, Bushwick, Brooklyn. But toxic chemicals aren't unique to wild plants. I mean, I've seen such a range in toxicity results. I've collected wild spinaches off the street that, you know, had 0.01 milligrams per kilogram cadmium, which I've also tested spinach from the grocery store that had more. It turns out that the different plants interact with chemicals in the environment in unique ways. Fruits and anything with a hard shell are generally fine. Leafy greens and root vegetables, not so much. The way we prepare them can also shift the levels of toxins. So arsenic is soluble in water. So let's say you're collecting some dandelion roots from Cooper Park. Um, When I steep those for five minutes, you know, I get varying levels depending on how much arsenic is in them. Sometimes it's negligible. Sometimes it's not. 
Uh, cadmium and lead are soluble in acid, so I can make quick pickles out of some field garlics that I collect from the abandoned uh, raised beds outside my local police precinct. And um, the heavy metals will be pulled into the pickle brine, but you can still eat the pickles themselves. Food is hiding around every corner. You just have to know where to look, what's safe to eat, and how to prepare it. By making friends with so-called weeds, there is much to learn, and these plants give much-needed silent support to the neighborhood ecosystem. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, Maya Bernstein-Shallot reports on the overforaging of ramps on Indigenous lands. Every year in April and May, foragers in the Northeast head out to search for a certain tasty green allium, ramps. But ramps are precious, and now, due to overforaging, they're in danger of going extinct. How much ramps do we really need to harvest to be happy? This is Neftali. Hi everyone, my name is Neftali Duran. He, him, them. I am one of the co-founders of the iCollective, which is an indigenous collective of uh, really badass people. Originally from Oaxaca, Neftali now lives in Massachusetts on land historically occupied by the Nipmuc Nation. Ramp's popularity on restaurant menus and at farmers markets has landed this plant a spot on extinction watch lists. Both the USDA and conservation organizations like United Plant Savers warn against ramp overforaging in the Northeast U.S. If we want to talk a little bit about uh, how to mitigate the extinction of ramps or any other uh, native species like that, we have to make sure to, uh, to first ground the conversation in indigenous food waste, which means the indigenous people should have a say or have a have thieves on what is being foraged, right? In addition to taking too many, a lot of foragers take too much of the plant. Removing the entire ramp with its root will prevent it from going back in years to come. The Nipmuc people teach their young how to forage in communion with recurring ramp growth. But learning how to forage ramps sustainably doesn't just mean learning how to respect their roots. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. 
And from that perspective, there has always been an understanding and an agreement, if you will, that you cannot forage more than you need. Otherwise, you will not have enough for next year or the years to come or for the future generations. The cultural knowledge on foraging sustainably has been disparaged along with indigenous peoples, but it hasn't gone extinct. I assure you, despite what we, what a lot of people learn in school, there's a lot of indigenous people surviving and, and thriving. The Nipmuc Nation is one of New England's largest and most historic native communities. For Neftali, foraging ramps or any other plant sustainably starts with connecting with the peoples whose land you are on. Regardless of where you are listening to this, you get to know the indigenous people of your region, get to know the, the local tribes, and be a good neighbor, you know. Be a good neighbor. Try to learn from, from local tribes. If you're looking to follow Neftali's advice, look up the tribes near your home. If you're a forager, learn how to forage the plants native to your region sustainably by researching their harvest practices and support indigenous groups' stewardship of the land as they see fit. Foraging isn't just about what we can eat, but also what we can drink. Way back in 2016, Souther Teague and Damon Bolte welcomed the founder of Uncouth Vermouth, Bianca Miralia, to the speakeasy. Bianca crafts delicious, locally sourced vermouth, primarily with foraged ingredients. Um, so yeah, you're doing some expansion. You've taken over a farm, big farm upstate. It's not big, but it is upstate. It's um, 16 acres, but a lot of it is, is forest, so which is great for a forager. And then I have a handful of acres of meadow where I've planted around um, 50 different edible species so far. And we're putting in a cherry orchard, um, some quince and fig trees and pawpaws and persimmon and all kinds of awesome, delicious fruits. Do you have a, like a horticulture uh, background? Um, sort of. I grew up with a mother who is a plant whisperer, and we would grow a lot of our fruits and vegetables just in our backyard growing up. And we would go hiking and, you know, point out different plants and things. And then I sort of got really into it when I moved back to New York in 2009 because I was kind of going crazy from being stuck in the city all the time. First of all, when did you make your first batch of vermouth? In 2011. At first, I was making vermouth just for some cocktail pop-ups, and I was making vermouth just like everybody else. I was using sugar and citrus and vanilla and all kinds of shit that grows nowhere near here. Um, but the irony is I have, you know, a winemaking background and a sustainable winemaking background. And so I, you know, decided to combine my love of foraging and see if it were possible to come up with an actual vermouth, like a real vermouth, that is made with ingredients that are in season and they're not pelletized and not extracts and without using sweeteners and, you know, approaching it from like a winemaker point of view rather than like a cocktail mixer. You're known for foraging for a great percentage of the things that go into your vermouth and they're all different and seasonal. Um, and now you're going to grow that stuff. Is that crossing some weird bridge? Are you still... So now you're, you're, you know, you're, you're growing the things that you used to just go seek out and find. No, is that, that going to change I'm, the direction of your vermouth making? Well, I'm, I'm still foraging every ingredient that I would normally forage. Uh, the, you know, I, th I think that's something that we need to kind of get to the bottom of is, is everything involving something going into a bottle 
there's going to be a big element of, of some sort of earthly manipulation, right? So when I'm foraging, that's kind of like the most sustainable possible practices I can use. Plus, ingredients that grow wild tend to, you know, be more aromatic. They're, you know, growing in the forest, whereas on my farm, I'm mimicking the forest, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm practicing permaculture, but it's still a manipulation of the earth, which is crossing a line for me in a way. But um, what I can find wild, I'll still find wild. And, you know, things that I was, you know, had been sourcing from farmers in the area, I'm going to start growing myself. And I mean, the goal for both of those is so that, you know, my ingredients are making themselves. And so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them, whether they're in the woods or, you know, in the fencing of my of my farm acres. To hear more of Southern Damon's conversation with Bianca Miralia and about the time Damon went on one of Wildman Steve Brill's foraging tours, tune in to episode 192 of The Speakeasy. So, today's lesson. Take to the streets, to the parks, to your yards, and feast on what you can. Forage safely with an eye towards the plant's regrowth and respect for the land you're on. Learn more about our guests and this week's topics in our show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Meet in 3. Special thanks this week to Cameron Berger, Anna Oaks, Maya bernstein Shallot, Kat Johnson, and Hannah Forden. Meet in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, Write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.